Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight is July 19th of 2012, and tonight our guest is Dr. Marlene Winnell, Ph.D. Um, she's a specialist in people who are leaving fundamentalist religions or severe religions. Uh, she does counseling with those people, and she's written a book. It's called Leaving the Fold, a guide for former fundamentalists and others leaving their religion. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Marlene Winnell, is uh, right here. Marlene, how are you doing this evening? I'm fine. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Uh, how did you get interested? Uh, what made you want to get interested in counseling people leaving fundamentalist groups? Well, the, this area of specialty was not really intentional. I was going through this kind of recovery myself and and basically writing about it myself originally and then ended up uh, sharing some of that and to my surprise found out that lots of people could relate to the difficulty of the transition from the religious lifestyle into trying to be a secular person and recover from the damage and I really didn't have any idea um, so it, it, it started off with just um, a, a, a paper um, which developed into a paper that I gave at a conference and then eventually evolved into a book I was and I started listening more to my clients and asking them more about their background and then interviewing people. So um, it just evolved. And uh, it's been very rewarding um, because it's it's a neglected area, I think, in psychology. So what's your personal background? Did you come out of a fundamentalist background? Yes, I was raised... um, Overseas, I was I was born in Hong Kong, grew up in Taiwan. My parents were uh, Assembly of God missionaries. And then when I when I was 16, we moved to Southern California, and I was a Jesus freak myself. So the Jesus movement was going on there, and I got pretty involved with Calvary Chapel and other churches, and then um, had to um, calm down in college and get over that as well. What uh, led you to decide that you wanted to leave the fundamentalist church? I mean, um, yeah, what made you decide that this is not true anymore? Well, it was a combination of pushes and pulls, and I think that's that's probably true for a lot of people. Um, becoming disillusioned and 
uh, finding out what the problems were both with the religion and the Bible and, and the church, the people, uh, that were just not not coming up to um, my standards and expectations either intellectually or or morally either. And then also the polls being uh, realizing that there were other frameworks for looking at life and the world and that other people that were not in our closed little society were not necessarily crazy or stupid or evil and uh, broadening my perception and um, being attracted to having a much broader and richer uh, view of view of the world and getting over some of the fears that are involved with venturing out. So well, I- it doesn't it doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight, um, and it was difficult because it meant a lot to me. But but gradually, uh, more and more things start pulling it apart, and also more things become more acceptable and attractive that are pulled out as well. Well, I'm going to share a little bit of my background, too. Um, some of my people uh, online uh, know that I am also from a fundamentalist background, is from the Evangelical Free Church. Uh, we, uh, I was brought up to believe in creationism. In fact, I read a book called uh, Evolution, Fact, or Theory, which was floating around a lot in those days. I don't know if you ever saw that one. Um, that was out of Mo- Moody Press. Uh-huh. And, you know, I thought, you know, well, I had all the answers, you know, and these people that right. thought, believed in evolution just were, you know, full of nonsense. So I went very armed with my knowledge and checked out a copy of Darwin's Origin of Species so that I could just read him and demolish all his arguments. Of course, I found out everything I had been told that Darwin had said was things that Darwin had not said. And uh, I was 13 years old at the time, I remember, and uh-huh. uh, walked away after reading that and said, well, everything they told me about Darwin was lie. <laughs> and, uh, well, now I'm an atheist and now I'm an evolutionist because, you know, everything that here makes sense. And, you know, you, know, you shouldn't be telling lies to promote your creationist viewpoint. So uh, I had uh-huh. a very abrupt <laughs> break not not, hmm. not not necessarily an easy break, but a very abrupt break. Uh huh. And well, you know, pretty major major um, bit of reading for a thirteen year old. <laughs> yeah, well, I was I was precocious. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, huh. So and you how know, that, I, how, out of curiosity, how did how did that feel to find out that that what you'd been told wasn't true? Well, it was shocking. I was very angry because, you know, the one thing I've been taught was that thou shalt not lie. And here the people mm-hmm. were lying to, um, you know, they were, there's Lamarckian evolution for those of you who know this field, um, which was long before Darwin. And it's something Darwin disproved. And they attributed all the Lamarckian evolution to Darwin and then said, see, this is why it's false. Mm-hmm. But actually Darwin was the one that disproved it, not them. So it mm-hmm. was just it was just a, a big load of hogwash that I had been fed. Mm-hmm. Um, it left me really um, left me really a sea. I really had to start pursuing, mm-hmm. you know, what what was what? What was the meaning of life? 
actually. Yeah. And I started doing some pretty heavy-duty science reading after that and trying to study theory of relativity and everything else to try and figure out, you know, what was what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it shakes up your whole sense of reality, doesn't it? Absolutely. I was very driven. Um, That's why I dropped out of school. Even before I reached the age of 16 where it was legal, I stopped going, you know, when I was 15. I was just saying, I was reading all these books. You know, I was way out in the country, you know. I would be asking my teachers things like, you know, how does this calculus work? And I said, we we didn't study calculus in school. I wasn't getting any education in school. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, getting books through the mail order. And wow. I was reading very intensely. Wow, incredible. Um, were you going to a Christian school? Uh, no, I was going to the nearest school to our farm, which was already an hour commute by bus just to get to the nearest school. So as I said, I was way out in the country. Mm-hmm. That's why I was but getting my... Teaching, but, but they weren't teaching evolution there. Um... They were not committed. They weren't teaching much of anything. Um, You know, I read my uh, science textbook. You know, I read the whole thing when I was in fifth grade. And, you know, by the time, you know, I was three years later, they were just reaching the stuff I got to the the end of the book. It was was very poor quality education. Mm -hmm. So did you keep going to church? Like, did your parents make you keep going to church for the rest of the time? They made me get confirmed. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk to them about this, but once uh, you were confirmed in my family, at least the boys didn't go to church anymore. <laughs> oh. Hmm. So, well. well, my father had a bad experience in church too because uh, they made him go to church all, and he, the whole church was in Swedish, and he only spoke English. Mm-hmm. Because my grandparents wanted to hear it all in Swedish, so. Um, well, I don't want to go uh, entirely on my story, because you're my guest, so I want to talk to you about your book. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, tell us, uh, okay, what are some of the things that people can do if they're trying to deprogram from their fundamentalist programming? What are some of the ways to recover and, uh, you know, before we even go to that question, what are some of the negative things, first, that they need to recover from? Why is it bad to be fundamentalist? Well, uh, the, the, there are a couple of things, I think, that you can you can sort of put this into a couple of categories. One is the damage done. There's, there's, there's actual damage done by a dogmatic religion that teaches certain toxic ideas that at a young age when your brain isn't even developed and and then also the practices of the religion can be damaging. And then the other big thing is that uh, a religion that's forced on you can, can prevent you from developing as a, in normal ways that are really important as a human being. So when people are recovering, they sometimes need to do some healing of, of damage done. And, and sometimes that it can be very deep, and it can be like healing trauma, and a bit like PTSD, chronic PTSD. Uh, 
can. And so some of the treatments that we're familiar with, like cognitive behavioral and so forth, as far as cognitive restructuring can be really important, but also deeper kinds of treatment that are not verbal and body-oriented and things like that can be important because some of this happens at such a young age and it's stored so deeply. Uh, and, And then beyond that, when you get out, it's like you've been let out of a cage and you're now free to do some of the developing that you're quite capable of doing and that you would do naturally and you're no longer prevented from doing, like thinking for yourself. If you're in an authoritarian religion, you're really not supposed to do your own thinking. No matter what they say, and they'll say stuff about how God wants you to have a free will and choose freely and all this kind of thing. But I would challenge anyone to find a Christian parent who would sit down with a child who's old enough to understand and and show them the basics of Christianity and then also present Buddhism and and it, and Muslim Muslim faith and Mormonism and a whole variety and explain them all the pros and cons and let the child choose. Right? Mm-hmm. And and in school, if kids did get religious education, um, that would be great, I think. Uh, it would be comparative religion. People in this country don't get comparative religion unless they take it as a course, usually in college. So uh, the point is that that no, you're not supposed to think for yourself. You're supposed to accept a lot and, and conform to what you're being taught because that is taught as the, the truth. And you're even taught that thinking your, thinking your own thoughts and coming to your own conclusions is wrong and dangerous and you'll be under the influence of Satan, certainly get deluded. But, but you yourself are not capable. And so you have to defer to authority. Um, so that's that's something that you have to recover from and learn to do. And then the other is that you get terrified of uh, the consequences of doing any number of things because so many things are wrong and bad, and original sin tells you that you are wrong and bad. So a couple of teachings that you, a couple, the most toxic teachings that I think are the main ones that cause the most damage are this one of original sin being basically bad and wrong. And the other one being uh, eternal punishment, the hellfire teaching. So one is about eternal torment and horror, and the other is, is ter- terrifying. Um, and people in their middle age can still have nightmares, waking up uh, screaming and terrified, even though they don't believe it anymore. So these are some of the things that are just plain damaging. Well, you know, it's interesting. As I read through your book, I kept seeing so many parallels to uh, what I had seen in AA. And people, a lot of people that were damaged by AA have come to me because they're looking to deprogram. They're looking for another way. And, you know, we have, in fundamentalism, we have the original sin. In mm-hmm. AA, we have you are born with the disease of alcoholism. It's... Uh, it's not even something you develop. You know, you're born with it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's so close to original sin. 
You know, in uh, fundamentalism, we have hellfire. In AA, you're going to drink and die. I mean, the threat of death mm -hmm. has replaced the threat of hell in AA. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, for people who are familiar with the origins of AA, for the first four years of its existence, it was known as the, the alcoholic arm of the Oxford group movement, and that was a fundamentalist Christian movement. And it mm -hmm. developed, I mean, it inherited so many concepts from fundamentalist Christianity. But, mm -hmm. you know, they they change a few things around. Instead of the threat of hell, it's the threat of death. If you ever leave AA, you'll drink and die. And, of mm -hmm. course, you, you're thinking, stinking thinking. That comes from AA. Your thinking is thinking. Anything that you think is bad, um, mm -hmm. you get told. Your best thinking is what brought you here. Wow. Wow. And, and also, in AA, you're not supposed to trust yourself. Exactly. And the first step of AA is say, I am powerless. Mm -hmm. And the second step is say, I need a higher power to restore me to sanity. So you're declaring you're insane, you're declaring you're powerless, you're declaring you need a higher power. And, of course, mm -hmm. anyone that questions, is there a God, is told, well, make AA your God. G-O-D stands for Group of Drunks. Um which to me is really scary because, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> a group of people should not be regarded as God. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the other slogans that's very common is, I can't, we can. Uh, but I, I think it's very damaging to say over and over, I can't, I can't. And, you mm -hmm. know, to be reliant on some group. And then when we look at some of the statistics on how AA compares to an untreated group and who has the better recovery. Well, some some studies showed AA did worse than an untreated group. Some showed they did somewhat better. Some showed they did the same. There's no conclusive evidence that AA is good at helping people to stop drinking. It is very good at making them fanatical and very afraid to ever leave their group because if they leave, they think they will drink and die. Well, and, to going to going to meetings too, don't they? Absolutely. Well, the worst thing that I see is that people are set up so that if they do leave, they almost always drink in a disastrous manner. They probably drink and drive, might kill somebody or themselves. They, you know, they're they're set up to actually kill themselves if they leave AA. Wow. This is what yeah, the indoctrination. It's amazing what um what beliefs can do and just ideas and, and, and what language, what power language has. Yeah, absolutely. I was looking uh, here in your book at some of the things about changing your beliefs and you, you know, you start with I am and that's one of the most powerful statements. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that a little bit? Oh. The, about changing beliefs? Yeah, belief restructuring. I think that's what you called it. Um, belief well, reconstruction. Yeah, core core ideas, and sometimes these are not necessarily um, articulate. Sometimes we have core assumptions that we carry that we don't even know we carry, and it can take a little bit of searching and, and self reflection to find out what it is that what some of these core ideas are that you have. That's why sometimes when people uh, don't do any reflection and, and maybe they have left their religion and they, they, they think everything's fine, um, but they're having various p 
problems in their lives. They don't see the connection. They don't see the connection that where where they got. They don't see the root of what some of their problems are. Like if they're struggling with having some self-worth and they don't think about the fact that they were told how bad they were when they were from a very young age. They don't see the connection there. Um, so, so one of the things that's helpful is to really think through what are the things that whether or not you are good at putting them into words or not, what are the things deep down that you assume about yourself or your or life or other people? And so that's why in that exercise I have those sentence stems, the beginnings of sentences, and I suggest that you finish them pretty spontaneously in terms of what your religion would have said. So I am would be, uh, I am a a sinner but, uh, and need, needed to be saved. Now I'm a child of God and I need to follow the Lord or something. You know, whatever flavor of that was your uh, church belief system. Um but then think about, you know, what what that really implies. What does that mean? And what is what are the feelings that that creates and what are the behaviors that that creates? And if you want to change that, uh, it, you need to start with thinking about what what is it that you're going to how would you put that in a in different terms? What do you think now? And sometimes people are able to put it in different words, but it doesn't feel true just yet. Like you might say, uh, I'm an innocent human being just like the rest of the plants and animals and I I live here on earth and I have a birthright to be happy and love life, etc. You can say whatever you like like that and cognitively believe that that's true. The challenge is in your gut and emotionally uh, actually feeling it and living your life that way. Um, but but it's a starting point, and there are more steps to take. So that's why it's a good start. What are some of the other exercises that people can do to uh, recover from fundamentalism? Well, one of the big things, and um, this is something that some people are a little uncomfortable with, I do use the inner child uh, metaphor and I'll explain I'll explain a couple things about that because some people think it's kind of uh it's kind of corny and I think that in pop culture it has been made into a kind of corny thing and I would like to clarify what I mean by it. Uh we 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 all of us have an emotional core actually that's so powerful. It's more powerful than our rational uh cerebral cortex, right? We have to understand a certain amount of neurology. We have an old brain. We have our amygdala and our hypothalamus. We have aspects of our of who we are that it's just that, that go back millions of years. Our animal selves and fears are basic emotion, for example, and it's, it's there for a purpose. So to understand ourselves, and by the way, when people are are worried about believing evolution. Um, I, I've made the point, and I have some YouTube, some, some uh, there, there's a three-part series on, on my YouTube channel explaining this, 
about why it's so important to understand ourselves as animals and the objection to evolution. The objection to evolution that people usually are talking about has to do with creation, you know, how the world came to be and the whole Adam and Eve story. But I think the most important part is different. I think it has to do with the way that we are thinking about who we are. And, Mm -hmm. of course, that's brought up in terms of, oh, so you think we're descended from monkeys. We're just, you know, this this humiliating self-concept. But I don't think it's humiliating at all. I think it's, it's liberating to think clearly about who we are as part of this vast uh, network of life and in our origin and different parts of our brain, the fact that our brains right now are basically the same as Cro-Magnon, man wandering the plains of Africa, and that some of our knee-jerk reactions are ancient, and to understand some of that so that we can take those things into account, take responsibility for that, and then also take a breath and use our cerebral cortex to uh, think about things and make decisions about whether or not we're really in danger or not. Because this is why religion works so well. It's fear-based. To talk about Satan being, you know, a a lion um, roaming about uh, waiting to devour you, you know, there are demons behind every bush and and the world is a dangerous place inhabited by, ruled by Satan. This is a very fearful way of living life, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, makes and, me... and it fits this ancient, um, it, it actually fits the model, like a hunter-gatherer society, because you don't just go wandering out of your cave and whistling a tune. You know, if the grass is rustling, you need to you need to think about whether or not there's a tiger there and be very alert, be very vigilant, and be primarily concerned about your safety and predators and things like that. But but in our modern era, uh, it's not necessarily true that your life is in danger all the time. Um, we do have plenty of opportunities to think about whether or not we're actually in danger and to assess the threat. That's what I say a lot, is assess the threat. Are you really going to die right now? Because your brain, these old, old parts of your brain are going to be alerting you uh, more often then it's really necessary, and that's normal. So religion can prey on that. Religion can capitalize on that and uh, be very successful, and that's what's actually so manipulative and so unfair because little children obviously have no defense in uh, getting brainwashed along these lines. Um, but that wasn't your question. What was your question? We're covering. Oh, so I was talking about the, the, the inner child thing. The child, see, this is a metaphor. I'm not saying that, that you have another being inside of you, like a homunculus. Um, but the self, the self is not a unitary phenomenon. I mean, we know this from from all kinds of sources now, self-psychology and neurology and so forth. We have different aspects of self. And so if you think about part of you as being this emotional um, part that is childlike in many ways, and then you also have a part of you that is more the thinking part that can be wise and can negotiate with the world and can see more perspective and can communicate with that 
other part. In other words, you can talk to yourself. Everybody has inner dialogue. And most of the time it's really jumbled. And the Buddhists call it the monkey mind. And this is why people meditate a lot and try to calm down and master all this jumbled inner inner dialogue. And And this is a way of making it productive and healthy and self-nurturing so that when that emotional part of you gets scared or sad or overreacts, um, you can do the self-soothing and the self-caring and not be outsourcing the way that religion wants you to and be expecting somebody in the sky to do it or taking it to a, a book or, or a pastor, you know, as somebody else that's going to do it and then avoiding that responsibility. So when people learn um, that they can do some of this self-care and make that bond, that inner bond between their 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 uh, what I call big and little. I mean, you don't have to say uh, child and parent or any of those words, but but just make that inner bond so that you are caring for yourself and taking on that responsibility, which is a big, huge existential task, and most people don't want it. But once you do it, you find out you can do it. You're not incapable, and there's a lot of joy in it. There's a lot of freedom in it, and you can do it. And um, it's wonderful, and you feel a lot less need to be taking orders from someone else um, or looking for God's will, which is pretty tough to find anyway. So that's a very healing piece. That's a very, very healing piece to find out that you can actually take care of yourself a lot better than you thought. And it was wrong what they told you, that you're incapable and that you have to... I mean, all these hymns, the hymns, by the way, are as brainwashing or worse than scripture. Hymns that have to do with rescuing me and my, you know, all the dependency and, you know, I would be lost without Jesus. And and you ask any Christian, you know, what would your life be like if you weren't a Christian? And they tell you these terrible, terrible things like that. So anyway, that's that's a big step is to um, take on that responsibility for yourself and find out that, yes, you can do that and learning self-trust. Self-trust is the biggest central task for people coming out of any authoritarian religion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, people, you also mentioned that people, you know, are taught to believe that the Bible is the infallible word and well in AA it's also you know the big book is infallible and the program never fails only people fail the program sorry that was my computer go on <laughs> so um but uh you know th- this is this is something else to overcome you know the idea that you know the program can never fail only people can fail the program or the bible is never wrong only people are wrong mm so that they do that in AA too. If you if you if it's not working, then it's your fault. Oh, absolutely. The program mm-hmm. never fails. The twelve steps never fail. And of course, you know the twelve steps are merely suggestions. But anyone who fails to follow the twelve steps signs their own death warrant. <laughs> you know, you get that cognitive dissonance there. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I wanted to run an idea by you. Um, I mean, I ha- I feel like I have a lot to learn about these alternatives to AA, and I'm looking forward to reading your book. Um, but one of the things, it, it does have to do with language. And, you know, in AA when they say, I am powerless, um, and most people have objected to that in terms of, of using the word powerless. But but actually, I think that 
um, part of the problem is the word I. Because, mm-hmm. Like I was saying, you know, we are we are complex. We are actually multiple. And sure, there's a part of me that that cannot deal with this or that, and and am highly influenced by my environment. And if I'm on a diet and I've got my cupboard stocked with cookies and cake, you know, good luck. I mean, we're not we're not super beings that are able to do whatever we like with that. I don't really believe in willpower like that. Um, I think there's a certain humility that's important, and maybe that's a little bit of what people are saying with some of those steps. But, but I think it's it's in other words, it's not black and white. There, um, I think we need to understand ourselves better. Uh, the, the self-reflection and self-awareness in order to make choices and do what do the things that we're trying to do is important. What do you think about that? Well, I think, you know, when you say I am powerless, you're opening yourself up to being dependent. And it's not all about willpower. I mean, if you're on the diet, well, you can use your brain power, not just your willpower, and you can say, okay, I'm going to go on a diet next week. I'm going to get these cookies and cakes out of my house so they're out of my way, you know. You have mm-hmm. powers. You have lots of powers. You have your brain power, your willpower, uh, your emotional power, um, and you know what's needed is not to make a confession of powerless powerlessness, mm-hmm. but actually to enhance your innate abilities and to grow. You know your abilities to be stronger mm-hmm. and to change in the ways that you want to change. Mm-hmm. Although you were thinking more uh, concentrating on the word I, which is a whole other take on it, which I think is very interesting. I haven't considered it before, so I want to think about it a lot more. But it's a really interesting take, and it's, it's definitely worth exploring much more in depth. Yeah, and, and the, the idea of a multiple self, um, and it's just kind of gained popularity in psychology, and um, it's it's kind of freeing because, um, I mean, everybody's had off days and times when you, you know, you're having you have different um, amounts, feeling different amounts of ability to do different things. And, and if you are able to distinguish, especially if you're able to just distinguish between your adult and child, then um, you can you can avoid certain problems. Like, for example, with my clients, a lot of times they have a whole lot of trouble when they visit family, you know, because the family's still very religious and uh, they've left the faith and it can be hugely challenging. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so we talk about it in terms of the adult and child or, or any particular task. Like um, like taking care of your child before you go, and like when you're talking to your mother, like okay, I'm, you talking to your mother on the phone. Okay, who's going to talk to her? Your little, your 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 very traumatized little girl, or your grown woman, your wise grown woman that has a handle on what's going on, and just just. Just having that one concept can just be so helpful, you know. And the fact that if you just randomly talk talk to 
somebody on the phone that you know, it's going to be really, really difficult for you. Um, you don't want to go into that little kid's space and do it from there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, intuitively, intuitively, it just really, really works well. To um, and then and then in terms of building that self trust, that little kid inside you starts finding more and more safety and trust that in your own wise adult self that hey oh wow you are able to take care of me and because that part of you is like the advocate and can speak for you and not uh, allow you to get re-traumatized and it sounds like you were able to to leave your religion at an early age or see see some things early on which is great but a lot of people uh, um, take it very I took it very seriously I was expecting Jesus to come back any day, and I was witnessing and, and first years all the way through high school. Um, so letting go was, was hard. And so, you know, there's a lot of healing. Yeah, I was very convinced of that. I, I mean, until, you know, my abrupt transition when I was 13, you know, but before that, you know, I... Yes, of course, uh, the revelation is going to happen any minute now. It's all predicted. Um, I mean, as I said, I was precocious. I read, I read these huge books that were explaining how the Catholic Church was the great beast of revelation and <laughs> all that other nonsense. I'm sure you've seen a great deal of it. You know, it's interesting how all the different groups see the other groups as being satanic. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, actually a huge attraction to Catholicism, uh, you know, for years and years afterwards because, you know, I had always been told that they were satanic and all going to hell. So, you know, after I broke with the church, that was a big, with the fundamentalist church, I was hugely attracted to Catholicism. It's it's too rigid for me. Um, I did finally uh, get somewhat involved with an Episcopal church because I started working for them as a sexton, but... Uh, that's very liberal, so that's that's uh, not restrictive for me. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, I was attracted to Catholicism, communism, alcohol, and all those good things that were all condemned by my religion. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you had to. Did, so did you develop some alcoholism that you ended up needing to overcome? Is that how you got interested in that? Oh, I was a very heavy drinker. I got in trouble with uh, drinking, got fired from my job, um, tried to go to AA, nearly killed me. I never drank so much in my life as when I was in AA because they kept saying every meeting, alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. You are powerless. You know, they kept Mm. beating this into my head because I was supposed to, you know, jump and cling to a higher power, but that was just impossible. So the only effect they had was, you know, to make me drink more than I ever had in my life. Nearly killed me with alcohol withdrawal at that point. And, um, you know, I said, you know, this group is not God, first of all. They're a bunch of idiots. And they say, you know, if you want what we have, you'll do what we do. And I look and see that they're a bunch of nuts, and I don't want the insanity that they have. And so, you know, I was totally turned off. And finally, you know, after I nearly died of alcohol withdrawal, I said, you know, I'm never going back there again. Mm-hmm. And I have to find another way to do things, and I did. And so, I mean, I, I worked the harm reduction method. I made extreme reductions in my alcohol consumption. I didn't quit mm-hmm. completely. Uh, 
I mean, mm-hmm. in our program now, it's called HAMS. It's a Harm Reduction, Abstinence, and Moderation Support. We have quite a few mm-hmm. people that do decide to quit completely. We don't have any problem with, you know, choose the goal that works for you. If quitting is what works mm-hmm. best for you, we support quitting. You know, if cutting mm-hmm. back is what works best. And if the only thing you're ready to do right now is to be safer and maybe say, you know, I'm going to quit drinking and driving. I'm going to drink just as much as always, but drinking and driving is stupid, so I'm going to quit. And we say, that's mm-hmm. a great plan, so do that. Mm-hmm. So everybody gets support on an individualized plan. Right, that's great. That's that's so great that you turned your own experience into something that was that would end up helping others like that. No, no. So, so you you have a support group. Is that is that support group online or in person or? Uh, we have two live meetings currently. One's in New York City. One's in Kentucky. Uh, we have online support groups, which are quite popular. We have uh, an email group through Yahoo, and we have a real-time chat. And uh, the Yahoo group has about 800 members right now. And th- people really like that because, you know, they can participate whenever it's convenient for them. So, you know, if it's uh, noon in Australia and that's convenient for you, you can send your message in and somebody, when it's noon in New York City, can, you know, write the reply back to you. Uh-huh. Oh, I I don't know if you realize I have a support group as well. It's uh, it's international also. It's uh, called Release and Reclaim. Um, and I, and I'm calling people reclaimers, people that have left their religion and are reclaiming their lives. And there's a lot to reclaim: your life, yourself, your creativity, your sexuality, all that. So um, I've been doing these weekend retreats uh, for for people recovering and calling. They're called Release and Reclaim. But um, just because there have been some people coming out of so many backgrounds, not just ex-Christian, um, and we wanted to not use atheist or something that would not necessarily apply to everyone and also not be such a huge group because a lot of atheists have never been religious and have ended up with that, that word. Um, but we have, there's an online group that is confidential, um, so it's almost like a virtual therapy group. And we have conference calls once a month as well, as well as the ongoing forums and things like that. So what's the URL that people can go to to get there? Well, the the, the actual group website is, is something that you'd have to join uh, after a couple of steps, including an interview with me, because, like I said, it's a members-only thing, and I, I have to screen who's in it. But if you want to find out about it and make that first contact, go to journeyfree.org. So journeyfree, all one word, .org, and that's where you can find the information. Okay. And also information about other things. That sounds good. In fact, we're starting to run out of time. So the website is journeyfree.org. The book is called Leaving the Fold, Leaving the Fold, and it's a guide for former fundamentalists and others leaving their religion. And I want to thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Winnell. Is there any final word you want to say? Um, no. I, I, like I said, I would like to. Um find out more. I, I I am very interested in building this alliance of, of recovery organizations and people. So um, on Journey Free, 
um, Jennifer, the, the website is much in progress, and I'm wanting to add on to it resources like yourself and gradually build up a whole uh, alliance network of people that are available to help folks that are coming out of religion and looking for looking for ways to to uh, heal and grow and thrive. So appreciate getting to know you. Well, that sounds good. Um, and we're going to say goodbye to you now and invite everyone to come back next week when our guest will be uh, Ryan Paul Carruthers from Abentra Counseling in Nebraska. Who is do- He's doing harm reduction counseling in Nebraska in the great Midwest there. So we're going to hear about how that's going. And uh, I guess it's a bit of a challenge And I want to thank everyone, and good night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.